The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. Friends, we, we live in an age of deconstruction. And it's affecting everything. Uh, it's a buzzword right now, I think, most often within Christian communities. But the, the world's actually unhinging itself from truth. And it has been for, well, ever since the fall, really. Um, but you can see it at different times in history where it seems like it's more prevalent, right? Uh, every idea is up for grabs. And, and everything's actually open to being picked apart, right? Um, from whether the earth is round or flat, <laughs> right? Uh, I, don't, I hope that, I mean, there might be a flat earther here. I, I'm sorry. That seems like insane, but people really believe this, and they really think that everyone else who thinks this thing's round is delusional, right? Um, to, to, did we ever go to the moon or not? Um, I even heard one, really, this week. I was sitting having coffee, and someone's talking to me, and, and he literally said, you, do you think birds are real? And, and I tried not to pull Gabe, right, and just laugh, because I thought, is he serious? Or No, he was serious. He goes, you know, I don't think birds are real. He goes, they are from the CIA, and they, they sit on the wire, and that's how they charge. And I'm like, bro, I have killed birds. I have plucked their feathers. I have taken their guts out, and I've thrown them in a skillet. That was real. It was real flesh. There were no mechanics in that thing, and it was tasty, right? Um, more serious things uh, is, is gender. Uh, gender's up for grabs. Um, and, and, and really, like, as though chromosomes are not really from conception. They're just a suggestion. So, so this world's unhinging itself from truth. It really is. And, and if you think that doesn't affect your everyday life, well, you are not paying attention. Absurd, skeptical objections, the things that were firmly believed truths that are just saying, ah, the heck with it, um, is happening right now. But none of that's new. It's none of it's new. I mean, history just continues to repeat itself over and over. You're going to see Sadducees who reject plain truth. They reject it. And, and so Jesus is going to be confronted. Don't forget where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. Everyone's confronting Jesus about his authority. And the Pharisees have taken their swing at him. And now the Sadducees. This is the first time Luke's mentioned these, this particular people in his Gospel. And now they're going to take a poke at Jesus. And so look at how they approach him. And I think we have a, we have a lot to learn about how Jesus engages mocking people when it comes to truth. Okay, so you look at that with me. Let's look at verse 27 through 33 to begin. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Just know this, that's Luke's definition of them. <laughs> you don't want to be known for that, right? Well, did they do other things? Yeah, but that's not what we're going to talk about. These are the folks who deny the resurrection. Okay, and they asked him, Jesus, a, a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there, was, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third also took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. 
Afterwards, the woman also died. Yeah, no doubt of a broken heart. Um, In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Ah, that's, 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 man. It's interesting, right? Yeah, especially for our culture. The, see, the Sadducees here were really, they were basically a political party, much more than a, a theological religious sect. They were, they were very uh, liberal in their theology. Uh, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and everything else they would deny. Uh, but they, they were really unconcerned about Jesus until Jesus started to get into their business right? Jesus was gaining traction, and now they feel threatened by him, and so they, or they thought they could benefit by him. So either way, this is how they start to interact. And the the Sadducees' question about the resurrection is not an attempt uh, to, to really set a trap for Jesus, but it's really, it's an absurd attempt to say, what you believe is silly, Jesus. What you teach is silly, right? Uh, They're they're not trying to entrap them. They deny the resurrection of the dead, right? They deny that there's life after death. The life right now that we have is it. By the way, does that sound familiar? Yeah, Yeah, the the world we live in denies that. And, And because that's a real belief, and it's a fundamental belief for many people, it will affect how they live. Because if this is the only life you have, well, that's going to change how you, how you view it and what you do with it, right? You got one chance at this. And so I think that's true of these guys. Um, they, they only believed the first five books, like I said, and they did not necessarily like the Pharisees because the Pharisees, they get a bad rap, but often these guys are Bible guys. They believe the Bible. They, they really want people to worship God rightly. Now, they got it a little mixed up, and Jesus is trying to work that out. Don't think of that way when it comes to the Sadducees. To, to prove their point, they actually just made up a, a scenario. Um, and this whole idea that the resurrection really is absurd or foolish, right? Uh, this is a favorite tactic by people who like to mock Christians. <laughs> it really is. We don't argue points. We just we poke fun. We, we say, well, could God you know, make a rock that's so big he could never pick it up? You know, I don't even entertain that. But people do this with creation, right? Two people. I did this. Heck, before Jesus saved me, I was this guy, right? Uh, two people. We all come from two people. So like, it was like, like, this is just like the earth is one big West Virginia. Um, you know, they mock that. The flood, right? Big boat, right? Two of every animal on a boat. Um, Jonah and a big fish, really. He was swallowed up and spit out on land. Know, know this, those arguments aren't really real. Um, they're just attempts to, to shame, embarrass, and ultimately silence people. That's, that's all it is. They just want you to be quiet. Because if you actually engage in a real thought-out you know, thought argument, they, they'll, they'll quote the Bible, but they don't believe the Bible. But they've never read the Bible. That's these guys. That's these guys. To grasp this made-up scenario, though, you really got to understand what's called a Leverite marriage. (laughs) Because we don't do this anymore, right? Um, Where a brother of a man who had a wife, the the guy dies, now the brother takes the wife, right? I don't think it's real confusing in the sense, but it's confusing in in concept, right? Why would anyone do that? Well, one, because we want to keep the family name and we want to keep the family wealth, And the way that would happen is through the male child. 
So if this woman, her husband dies, she has no male children. She's very vulnerable. That family is very vulnerable. The brother says, I'll care for your wife. We think that's like, oh, I wouldn't want my brother to be with my wife. I don't have a brother, but me neither, right? But, but they, they didn't necessarily just think like that. They thought family. They thought lineage, okay? And so Moses did teach on this in Deuteronomy 25. He taught that this would be a practice that you would do. And so that, that works for these Sadducees. They believe in the first five books of the Bible. Moses, yeah, we're good with that. We're going to learn about this a little more in Ruth throughout the summer, okay? And so if you're not familiar with it, that's all right. Hang on. But I'll tell you this. Even though we don't practice this because we're not Israel, I will tell you, I have a family member that when we, when Jesse was pregnant and they were like, man, I hope it's a boy. And I'm like, okay, why? And they're like, because you're really like the last chance for the rising name to continue. And, and really, my dad was the youngest of seven, right? I'm the youngest of his and our name's probably going to die. And I'm okay with that. But so much so, we didn't actually know what we were having, a boy or a girl. And she literally bought boy clothes. And she said, if it's a girl, I don't even, I don't even want to see her. Well, ta-da, there's Sarah. Oh, yeah, I have a crazy family. Uh, I saw this look like, that's awful. It is. Um, well, the Sadducees give a crude example of a barren woman. I mean, just feel, they, they just throw this out there like as if this woman doesn't matter. Imagine her pain right? Seven brothers, right? And, and none of them are able to give her children. And, and they throw this out in a sense to mock Jesus. Okay, big guy. So whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Which they don't believe, right? Well, this mocking tactic would work on many, but it doesn't work on Jesus. And so look what he does. Look at verses 34 through 36. Jesus said to them, the son's of this age, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to obtain, attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. <laughs> Whew, there's a lot going on there, right? Um, this whole argument is not primarily about marriage, it's about the resurrection of the dead. However, Jesus works with the illustration that they were working with, right? So we're going to do that too. And he does that to dismantle their thinking and to show them their error. The, the theological error of the Sadducees is thinking that life after death would be just like life now. That it would be exactly the same. And that's their error, right? Jesus says that. Look at it. Look at the text. Jesus clearly states that. He says marriage is a ceremony, he says, for this age. It's for this age alone. And, and there will be no marriage for the sons of God in the age to come. Right? So there's your error. Now, I imagine that this might be new for some of you. I remember sitting in a, in a church service when I heard that we would, Jesse and I would not be married forever in heaven. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Now, you might have a couple responses to that. One, I could imagine there's some of you right now internally going, Hallelujah! I just got to hang in till one of us die, right? And that's true. So hang in there. But I would also say get some care because we want you to have a, a marriage you enjoy, a marriage that reflects God's grace and mercy. And you probably need to work through, through some repentance and some faith and get some care. And that's okay. Cars need alignment. Marriages need alignment. 
I imagine that there's probably some who are sad hearing that. Um, man, I won't be married to my, 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 my wife or my husband for eternity? You won't. Now, it doesn't answer all the questions, and I can't get into all that. Well, like, will we know each other? Will we have a special friendship? Will we be besties in heaven? I have no clue. I have no clue. Um, I really don't. Um, here's what I would tell you. You won't care. You're just thinking too small. And when I say that, you, I mean me. When I, when I wonder those things, I'm just thinking too small, right? Because I'm, I don't have a glorified mind. I don't, I don't see God fully, perfectly as he is. And, and I don't have that companionship, even though I do have relationship with God in the way that I will then. So my life now is different than my life will be then. And the same is true for you. And that's what Jesus is getting at, right? Um, I also think of my single friends, uh, and I, I used to fail to do that in preaching often, but I think the Lord's given us a, a great group of single friends here. And so here's what I would say. I know that when we talk about marriage, sometimes that's just a fresh reminder of what you don't have that you desperately want. And I don't think that that's wrong. But I would say this, even that's thinking too small. So I'm trying to get us all to think bigger today. Uh, I would say this to my single friends, you're better off embracing sanctified singleness than, than running into a discontented marriage. Uh, I've, I've been a part of churches where they just really push singles to get married, and you almost feel like you're the scourge of the earth if you don't. Um, by the way, Paul was single. I think he had a full life. Oh, oh and Jesus. So it's, it's, it's possible to live life to the fullest and enjoy life as a single person, wholly devoted to the Lord, right? And, and it's okay if you want to pray. But all of those things, all those scenarios, those who are excited that marriage ends, those who are not excited that marriage ends, and those who are like, I just wish I could be married, we're not thinking enough about the beauty of what's being presented here, okay? But before we go there, let's define marriage, because I think we have to. Uh, to do that, I'm going to read a quote from a man named John Piper, who uh, I think really captures the essence, okay? And all of these could be very rooted and are rooted in the Bible. Here's the quote. God designed marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy, the good of society, the procreation of children. Marriage ultimately displays the glory and grace of God by picturing the unbreakable relationship between Christ and the church. That, that definition is grounded in Scripture, and, and we're going to look at some Scripture. Let's look at Genesis 2, 18 and 21 through 25. And uh, the reason I want you to see this is because God is the author of marriage, and we don't get to change the definition. He has declared what it is, okay? So let's look at it. The Lord that, the, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. By the way, this is before sin entered the earth. It's the first time God said something is not good, all right? Well, what's not good? Well, that, that Adam was alone. He had no helper fit, and so he goes on. I will make him a helper, or you could say a companion fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is poetry, by the way. We don't get it in, in our language. He says, this at last, 
Right? It's just so beautiful. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were fully known, fully seen, and not ashamed because there was no sin. And, and this doesn't work for my math, friends, but what, what the Bible says is one plus one equals one. That's what it's saying. He's taking a man and a woman, and he is doing something so beautiful behind the scenes that you and I can't see, and he's literally creating one. There's a oneness to marriage. It would be like if you took two two-by-fours and you slammed them together and put real good glue on them and ripped them apart one day. You, you're going to be different. The boards will never be the same. Some of you will be on this board and some of you will be on this board. And by the way, side note, I know some of you have experienced this because you have been through divorce. And, and I want you to know there's so much grace for you. There's so much grace for you. It does not define you. It does not define you at all. God's grace is greater than that. But it doesn't mean it hasn't affected you. It doesn't mean it hasn't changed you. It, it has. Now all of that will be corrected in the resurrection. But for right now, it doesn't mean you can't heal. You can heal. And if you need help with that, you should get help with that. Where do you start? You can start by talking to myself or Pastor Kevin, and we will start to direct a path of getting you care, right? And, and, and that's fine. That's okay if that's where you're at. But we're going to celebrate marriage here, and, and, and we're not going to shy away from it. What do we learn here? Well, one, what does marriage exist for? Ultimately, the glory of God. Ultimately. That is the ultimate reason. That's the ultimate reason everything exists, by the way. Just in case you're wondering, why does ice cream exist? Well, it's good, but it's for God's glory. Everything is to point back to his beauty, okay? And he'll even take sin, and not that sin's good, but he will, he will make it serve him and his sovereign purposes. And he will be glorified in and through all things. Now think about marriage though. Why does it exist outside of the glory of God? Well, companionship. We learned that right in the text. Our mutual joy. I enjoy being married, right? And there are times we don't, and we continue to work and fight that good fight of faith so that we can have a healthy marriage that we can actually enjoy, okay? And it is work. Sanctification, or you could say the good of society. Why do I say sanctification though? I'll tell you this. When you come together, iron sharpens iron, and sometimes, man, iron dents tin cans, but you've got to work, and God takes those moments of fighting and bickering that happen in all marriages, <gasps> even my mommy and daddy's, yep, happens, or if it doesn't happen, someone's not being honest. I'm just telling you that right now. You should not be surprised if you're having moments of conflict in your marriage. You should be really concerned if you're not. And the reason I say that is because most often the one person thinks that they're having a great marriage, the other one's dying on the vine, and you won't know it till your kids leave. I'm just telling you, this is all free. It's not part of the notes. So, so you should be having these moments where you're interacting and submitting to the Lord and confessing sins with one another and forgiving one another and laboring. That is sanctification. God takes this couple and he makes us more like God makes us more like Jesus, right? We become more loving, more tender. And it's, it's, a, it's a process. Well, that's good for society. Why? Because 
People who are more like Jesus is always good for a city. It's always good for a society, right? Child rearing um, or the procreation of, of children. Why is that? Because God said fill the earth. Why? Because we're the only part of creation that is made in his image and we reflect his beauty. Unlike anything else. Oh, no, I saw a bald eagle over a lake one time, and that was more beautiful. You, you could kill all the bald eagles in the world before you kill one human made in God's image, and that would be better. We, we just have to get our heads thinking properly. Now, I'm not saying kill bald eagles. They're fine. And it's a, so I think it's a federal crime, so definitely don't. <laughs> definitely don't. But we're made in God's image. That means every human, even the most despicable human that you could imagine, is infinitely worth more than all bald eagles everywhere at all time. Okay? Now, in this world, marriages and family relationships are, let's, let's say, time-limited. They're time-limited, right? So think about it. How long is, a, is one a husband or a wife? Well, it's essentially, the, the answer that you get in the marriage ceremony is until... Death, do you part. Good job, Gabe, and everyone else who was just whispering it. Um, er Earthly families, earthly marriages, they're fragile. And and they always come to an end because of death. Sure, they they might live on in memories. They might live on in in, photos. But even in time, those fade away. They really do. They fade away. But, But here's the thing. Marriages are really just a foreshadow. They're just, they're not the substance. They're just a shadow of what? Of of the real thing. And what is the real thing? The real thing is Jesus and his church, which which we learn in Ephesians chapter 5, that that's what this whole thing's about, right? So look with me at Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Hang in there. I know it's a little bit abstract at some level, but but you got to see this before we get to the, the real point, which is resurrection, Okay, so Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so Paul's echoing back to Genesis, and then he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying there that it refers to Christ and the church. The the Apostle Paul reaches back to Genesis to talk about something, and it's not primarily about earthly marriages. What is, what's it about? The, what's this, the profound mystery here is not earthly marriages. The profound mystery here is this. And by the way, mystery in this sense is revealed secret. It's not a secret anymore. It's, it's, not, it's not a mystery anymore. It's been revealed. What is it? The gospel that every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to be brought together by the blood of Christ. And there will be one God and one people for all of time. And, and marriages, even imperfect, and they're all imperfect, will, will echo to that beauty. And we will, and, and we will enjoy him. And it will, it will display his triumph to a world that has just unhinged itself from truth. Marriage submitted to God, let's say God's way, is a glorious demonstration uh, in the heavenly realms of the triumph of the unwavering plan that God has to redeem every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And how do we know that? And under Christ's rule and reign, because it ends in a marriage. It all ends in a marriage, right? We, we see that in Revelation chapter 19, 6 through 9. 
We went from Genesis to Ephesians, now to Revelation. I know we're all over the place, but hang in there with me. Look with me. Then it says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen of the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So, so what we have here is we have a picture of all who have ever trusted and believed in God for their salvation. And we will all be together. And, and this gets weird for guys specifically. We're the bride. We're the bride. And Jesus is the groom. But it's not like what you generally think of. It's much more beautiful than that. And we are one. And we are one forever together. And we celebrate our lives to God who saved us. And, and this goes on and echoes the whole way forever and ever and ever. Amen. This is the substance. This is the substance. Life with God. Real companionship. I have companionship with my wife and I enjoy it and I'm thankful for it. But it's a shadow. Life with God is, is going to be infinitely better than life with my wife. Okay? And I have a good wife. The, the resurrection, we will have perfect bodies. So sanctification will be fully, finally, and complete forever because you and I will be perfect in mind, body, spirit. And we will be human. You won't be like just this little smoky thing floating around. You won't be a chubby little cherub playing a harp. You will be in a human body without sin and without brokenness. Your minds won't be broken. Your emotions won't be broken. My hip won't hurt no more. Hallelujah. And Elaine will run. She'll run and she'll not grow weary. And that's true for you too. So we'll have companionship with God. We'll have a container, a capacity to enjoy life with God that you don't understand right now. I don't understand right now. I try to explain these things, but I'm grasping. We'll be like the angels, Jesus said. I don't know what to say about that. We'll serve God forever perfectly. I, I mean, there's, there's probably more that could be said, but I don't know. But we won't need sanctification because we fully glorified there will be no more death. <laughs> There'll be no more death. I long for that. My uncle died this week. And it's sad, right? There will be a day there will be no more death. You will not have to go to a funeral any longer. And that's why we won't have to repopulate. Why? Because you want to replace us. And so that's why those things are all temporary. Okay? So now think about all of that. You and I will have no more unrighteous desires. You have them now. I have them now. No more coveting. No more proud thoughts. No more anxieties. No more depression. No more broken brains. No more self-centeredness. No more sin. No more death. It's gone. It's just for a moment. We have it now. It will be gone. We will fully, finally love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, all our soul, the way we strive to and yet fail to every day. Forever. Forever. Joy will be our forever emotion because joy will be the emotion of heaven. And joy 
way more profound than you and I even understand joy right now. This is what's promised. But back to our text. <laughs> Look at verses 37 and 38. So this is all foreshadowing the, the reality. And Jesus said, but the, that the dead are raised, and even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. We can really learn about what Jesus is doing in his interactions with the Sadducees who are mocking this stunning reality in his approach. Notice he does not start with, with human reasoning, but he starts with the nature of who God is. And I think, boy, we could learn a lot when people start to mock the things we believe if we don't get caught up in the weeds of those arguments and we just talk about the stunning reality of who God says he is. And that's what he does here. Notice he recalls back to the books they believe, <laughs> right? You're mocking this, right? Oh, you're Moses' guys. You like the first five books of the Bible. Well, did you know that Moses taught more than just about Deuteronomy 25, in the Leverite marriage, which you guys happen to just rip out of context and use for your own little argument. Do you remember when Moses was, um, I'm talking like I'm Jesus now, I should quit that. Um, what he's doing is saying, do you remember when God showed up, manifested in a burning bush, and Moses approached this burning bush and said, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground, and the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And if you're reading through the Old Testament, you should be like, oh, I remember that. Well, because that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. And, and why was that interaction happening? Well, because God was about to send Moses on a little journey, and that journey was, you're going to go to the most powerful man on the earth and tell him to let my people go. Okay? Um... Uh, could you find another guy? I got a little bit of a stuttering problem, right? And so God says, nope, you're my guy. And so you go. But Moses had a good question. Do you remember what the question was? Um, who should I say sent me? Burning bush. I mean, just imagine this. I mean, this happened. I mean, I hope you understand that. These aren't just little fairy tales. This happened. And Moses is saying, who should I say sent me? And his answer is profound. Look at Exodus 3, 6 with me. And he said, I am. I am. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now think about this. Think, why did Jesus quote that text to the Sadducees? That's the question. And the answer is to show them that Moses taught way more than just about the Leverite marriage. What he taught was that when God spoke these words to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been long gone. They'd been dead for a very long time, right? <laughs> Jacob had been long expired, probably two centuries before this moment, right? And, and yet... God spoke of them still being his people and him still being their God. Why does that matter? Because God doesn't see them dead. Why? Because as we learn in Hebrews and all throughout the New Testament over and over, they're with him in glory right now. And Sadducees are like, well, yeah, but, and, and it's but, but nothing. He didn't say I was their God. He says I am forever, fully, finally. 
Nothing changes. He is the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. If you do not trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your salvation, as your Redeemer, you will be dead. That doesn't mean He's not still God over you, but not in the same way as those who have come to receive salvation. You're mine. And nothing will ever defeat that. Nothing will separate you from the stunning reality that your God's forever, not death even itself, which is why Jesus is going to go to a cross and triumphantly resurrect from a grave so that there will be no more death for God's people ever. And so that's why you can really, not some flippant way, but say, what can death do to you? Well, we know from Paul's teachings and over and over, only enter you into a more stunning reality forever. It's going to be the greatest day of your life when you die. You should not rush that. (laughs) Still take your vitamins and go for a walk. But if you're weary and you're like, I just don't know how much longer I can go. You can go until the Lord says no more. And on that day, it will be the greatest day you've ever experienced. And that day will go on forever. This is what God's teaching He's not only declaring their existence, but his ongoing relationship with them. So here's the point. And I'm just just ripping it right out of the Bible. And I put one word there. Jesus is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Friends, by grace through faith in Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, his triumphant resurrection, you and I have been united with him forever. And so marriage, it it points to that reality. It just points to that reality. This is Jesus' way of saying to the the Sadducees, so so put that in your pipe and smoke it. You don't know the Bible. That's That's what he's saying. You're quoting the Bible. You don't know the Bible. Because if you knew the Bible, you'd know that your God stands in front of you right now. And you want nothing to do with him. Don't forget the context. They do not want God to reign over them. And that's the context. Mark's gospel is more explicit. Mark 12, 24, in the same argument, said this. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. That's rough stuff. And by the way, look how they respond. This is pretty good, actually. Then some of the scribes, we're in verses 39 and 40 of chapter 20 in Luke. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. I mean, it's really hard to argue with the author of truth. He literally is grace and truth personified in the flesh. And so it's clear that the Sadducees didn't know the scripture They didn't know God's power. However, I got to tell you, it's not my concern. You know why? Because none of you are Sadducees. I can say that with confidence. You're not. The real question is, do I, do you, do we understand the stunning reality in the way that gives our lives stability as Christ as our cornerstone? Do we understand the truth in a way that gives alignment In in a world gone mad? in a world unhinging itself, you and I can't fix that. We can try. We should try. We should try. But but you can't stop that snowball heading to hell. Okay? But what can you do? You can 
you can know the God who has created you, who knows you, who loves you, and that will give stability to you in a world gone mad so that you can actually love the people who are caught up into that world so that you can see them rescued out of that domain of darkness and so that you can see them have life eternal and that they can be at the wedding, the greatest wedding ever, forever. This is our call. Do you know the truth in that way? And the answer is at some level. And I want you to know, we're, we're all journeying in a long direction of being more like Christ. If, I'm talking to Christians, those who are in Christ, right? And so he's continually teaching us, conforming us to be more like him. And that process takes time and it takes effort. But know this, he will get you there. He will get you there. He will get you home. Well, I, but I wonder if I'm doing it all right. You're not. You're not. Oh gosh, get over yourself. You're not. He's done it perfectly in your place. And now, it is. if it's meant to be, it's not up to you or me. He will get you home. He'll get you there. Why? He's promised. Why? Because he's the God of the living. And if you're in Christ, you've been made alive. You've been born again. I don't know why, but when I say that, I have to say it that way. <laughs> you're his. He's yours. So get to know him. Get to know him. Because as this world continues to unhinge itself from truth, you need the one who is the author of truth. Oh, and his truth is so good. In John eleven twenty five through 26, Lazarus had, had, had died. And he had two sisters. And Mary and Martha were very upset that their brother had died. And, and, and they're wondering... Why didn't you get here in time? And, and I can't go into all that, but here's, look, look at the words that Jesus speaks to them. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says, do, do you believe this? And if you're like me, amen, hallelujah, absolutely yes. And then there's moments it's like, Especially like when death comes knocking at your door someday. You start to understand what you believe. And I can tell you right now, even in your anxiety of wondering, do I believe? You know, Pastor Kevin has the joy of, of interacting with people right at that moment. Right on the cusp of meeting people. Meeting their maker. And man, he's working to know, do you know him? I want him showing up at my bedside, by the way. Do you know him? Do you know him? And he's, he's opening up the Bible, and he's, he's teaching Scripture, because faith comes by hearing, and he's, he's taking the saints, and he's trying to reassure them, you're going to be fine, I'm scared, I know you're scared, and, but Jesus is the resurrection, he will get you there, and then he is trying to, to instill fear probably, I'm baking this up on my own now, of those who don't know him, because you're not going to be fine. Even if your friends say, well, he's in a better place now. Maybe. And maybe not. But friends, if you believe in Christ, that he did live your perfect life that you couldn't, and he did die in your place, and he did triumphantly resurrect because he did. Oh, my friends, you shall never die. You're like, but I've been to funerals. Okay, your body will take a dirt nap. 
It's going to take a dirt nap. It's going to. It's going to go. You might, it might even throw it in. I mean, I don't even want to give that picture. You might get cremated. That's a fine way of saying about what I was about to say. <laughs> right? But your soul, your spirit goes in the moment you die to be with the Lord. Okay? And then there will come a day that Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will resurrect your ashes or your crusty old body. And he will reunite your spirit with your body. And he will give you a new glorified body, one that can never die again. And that's not even the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing is this body is perfect. But even that's not great news because if you think like, well, that means I can run and I can lift things and maybe I can throw mountains and elementary, I get it. I go there too. It's kind of cool. Do we fly? I don't know. But here's what I do know. You have no more sin. And God, you will be connected to him in a way you and I just can't understand right now. We'll be like angels. And actually, you know what's even more crazy? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we'll judge angels. And he means fallen angels, right? That's interesting. You're so closely linked. You don't become God. That's Mormon teaching. That's wrong. Um, But you'll be so closely linked to him that he uses marriage to say one plus one equals one. You'll be mine. (laughs) Wow. We'll forever be in a state where we'll never be hungry. We'll never be thirsty. Sickness pain, disease will be gone. It will no longer be even known. I'm sure we'll have some recollection of it. Anxiety, depression, broken emotions, gone forever. Wasting away in old age and death, gone forever. The tears that you have cried will be wiped away in a way that I long for and the tears that you have caused. And the older I get, I think more about the ones I've caused than the ones that have been caused upon me will be pressed out of your eyes. And you will only be left with infinite joy forever. Do you believe this? Friends, marriages and births will no longer be needed because we'll be like angels. It's just not needed. Why? Because we'll be fully known as we're already fully known. And we'll know him. Right now we look in a dimly lit mirror. We look in a dimly lit mirror. We, we can get a pretty good picture of what's going on. But it's so small in comparison to reality. It's so whew, incomplete still. Even though we know all the things we ultimately need to know to be there in that day. So let me finish with this. I know some of you. I'm trying to get to know all of you. I know some of you really well, and I know some of you are really hurting. I know it, because you share it with me, and I really appreciate that. And there would be a temptation to just want to curl up, cry, and wait till you die. And I'm, I'm praying, and I'm trying to exhort you to just not, just not quit. Don't, don't, don't wrap it up. Don't tap out. Keep pressing on. Why? Because until the day the Lord calls you home, he has a plan and a purpose for your life for his glory. And know this, know this, when we say gospel-centered ministry, all these buzzwords mean nothing if you don't know what we're actually saying. Gospel-centered ministry is this, it is God-centered and others-focused. And so no matter how bad you're hurting, don't think I've got to get it together before I can engage 
That's just a lie of Satan. Engage. And trust that the Lord will give you strength to do what he's called you to do because he's promised that. And when you're tempted to just want to tap out and you're just tempted to say, I just don't know how the Lord could use me. I want you to be reminded of a story. And here is the story. And this is how we're going to end. We're going to end with a quote. And here's the story. It's written by a man named John Newton. If you don't know him, get to know him. It's an old story back before there were cars. So that's why we're going to hear about carriages. But when you hear carriages, you can just say cars, okay? And it's about a man who's on his way to New York City, and he's on his way to get an amazing inheritance. By the way, that's true of you, only it's not New York, it's the presence of the Lord. And so here's what he said. He said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. End quote. Do you get the picture? It's a mile. You can make it. And when you get there, you get in the state. And you'll never have to walk again if you don't want to. You could pay someone to carry you the rest of your life. You could have 15 carriages and a a whole, (laughs) herd's not the right word, of horses, right? Steed. Um, Don't miss the illustration for you, though. It's real easy to want to just complain and grovel, and, and there's grace for that. But we ought not. And the reason is, is because what you and I are going to is infinitely greater than an estate at New York City. It's the presence of God Almighty forever. See, the goal of the gospel, if you could say, is God. And, and if you're in Christ today, right now, you have him. You have him. And the inheritance will be fully realized at the moment of your death or at the moment of his return. So you and I can be of good cheer no matter what happens in this political year. No matter what happens, whether you like elephants, whether you like donkeys, or you don't like any of them, that's me. Know this, your God is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and your God is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who rules and reigns forever, and therefore, that's where my peace is found. And so there might be a day you're wringing your hands and blubbering like an idiot. I won't call you one, but I'll say, quit and look at your God. We need each other, friends. And this is why it's so important that you and I make this church family a priority. Not just because you need it, but because I need it. I need you. You need me. We need each other. And we need to, when our friend falls down and lands in the gutter, to go along and pick them out of the gutter and say, let's just keep walking. We got this estate thing we're going to. I don't know what it all means. We guess we're going to be like angels. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> That's what the church is for. God help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this stunning reality of your grace and your mercy in the lives of very wrecked sinners who you save and make new and call your children. (laughs) It's so good, Lord. Help us to understand it more. Help us to not get our thinking on only 
these shadows will help us to see you as the full substance of everything we've ever longed for and that we have you and that you have us. And, and so, Lord, help us. Help us, to, help us to believe. Help us to root our thinking and believing in, in real reality. Let us not be shaken and taken away by the shadows that are very temporary, but may we look at our substance. May we see our God. Help us to see you more, we ask in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.